the History Channel original podcast. An assassin's bullet has thrust upon me the awesome burden of the presidency. I'm here today to say I need your help. I cannot bear this burden alone. I need the help of all Americans in all America. It's 4 p.m., November 22, 1963, three and a half hours after President Kennedy was murdered in Dallas. Now Air Force One is in flight on its way back to Washington. Lyndon Johnson is in the presidential lounge in the middle of the aircraft, conferring with his advisors. The body of his predecessor is in the back of the plane, stored in a cramped compartment normally used for meetings and small gatherings. Sitting next to JFK's casket is a dazed Jackie Kennedy, and close at hand are several of his advisors, Kenny O'Donnell, Dave Powers, and Larry O'Brien key members of the so-called Irish Mafia. The group sits in mournful silence, lost in their thoughts. The only sound is the thrum of the engines. One terrible question hangs in the air. Could they have stopped this all from happening? O'Donnell and Powers have been riding in the car directly behind the president, closer even than Lyndon Johnson. Could they have somehow warned Kennedy when the first shot rang out? O'Donnell was the president's appointment secretary. It was his responsibility to plan the trip to Dallas in the first place. Should he have talked him out of it? Planned a different agenda? Insisted on a bulletproof car? I'm getting a drink, O'Donnell finally announces. He pours himself a glass of whiskey and offers one to Jackie as well. Dave Power speaks up. He recalls a trip he and O'Donnell took with the president just a few weeks earlier. They had gone to visit the grave of Patrick Kennedy, the baby boy the first family had recently lost. He seems so alone here, the president observed, as he stood over his infant son's resting place. Jackie listens and nods. I'll bring them together now, she murmurs. Powers and O'Donnell exchange glances. Is she planning to bury JFK in Boston? The group continues to drink, And as they do, more stories spring forth. Memories from the campaign trail, private moments with the president. Laughter occasionally punctuates the tears. It had the feel, someone would later recall, of an Irish wake. A knock interrupts the storytelling and the group falls silent. Standing in the doorway is President Johnson. He offers his condolences and then he turns to the advisors. Here's David Farber, author of The Age of Great Dreams. Johnson was in an interesting position, which is most of the guys around Kennedy were not Johnson guys. They were not the people he was comfortable with. You know, the the so-called best and brightest that John F. Kennedy had surrounded himself with. But he also was aware that he can't go in there as the usurper. He can't just line up all the Kennedy guys and goes like, thank you for your service. Because he wasn't a legitimate president in some senses, right? We, we hadn't gone through this in a long time, in nobody's lifetime. 
Johnson is resentful of Kennedy's advisors. They had stonewalled his request as vice president. They had leaked details of his activities to the press. They had mocked him behind closed doors. But right now, none of that matters. I need you now more than President Kennedy needed you, he tells them. And then he makes a surprising request. He asks O'Donnell, Powers, and O'Brien to join his administration. I'm historian Steve Gillen, and this is 24 Hours After, the JFK Assassination, Episode 6, The Advisors. In our last two episodes, we went inside the world of Lee Harvey Oswald. Shortly after the assassination, Oswald was captured by the Dallas police. I positively know nothing about this situation here. I would like to have legal representation. They spent the next few days interrogating him, trying to obtain a confession before he was dramatically killed by Jack Ruby in an act of vigilante justice. While Oswald is being interrogated in Dallas, the rest of the world is moving on, and Lyndon Johnson is moving quickly to seize power. Lyndon B. Johnson becomes the 36th president of the United States, just 99 minutes after his predecessor's life had ebbed away. Questions about his intentions swirl. Here's Randall Woods, author of LBJ, Architect of American Ambition. He was a Southerner with all its stereotypes. He was the senator from an, a very conservative oil and gas state. A lot of his votes in the Senate had to uh, conform with his uh, statewide constituency. Progressives had always been suspicious of Lyndon Johnson and the old school style politics that he represented. And so for them, JFK's death was not just a human tragedy. It was potentially a political one as well. Would President Johnson roll back the fight for civil rights? Block JFK's policy agenda? No one is sure. And so in the first hours of his administration, President Johnson not only needs to calm the public, he also needs to win political allies, allies like Dave Powers and Kenny O'Donnell. How did these men, never elected to office or confirmed by Congress, become two of the most important figures in the Kennedy administration? And how did Lyndon Johnson use these behind-the-scenes operators to secure his new position of power? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. It was dusk on the night of January 21st, 1946, when Dave Powers heard a knock at the door. Powers lived in a third-floor walk-up in the Charlestown section of Boston. It was a blue-collar neighborhood, filled with longshoremen and others who worked at the Naval Yard. Powers was in his mid-30s, an Irish Catholic with thinning hair and a wide smile. He had served in the Air Force and was recently back from the war. He had lived in the area his whole life, 
As a boy, he sold newspapers down at the docks, and he was an usher at the local Catholic church. On paper, he didn't have a traditional political resume, but Day Powers knew everybody in Charlestown, and everybody knew him. Which is why, on that cold night in January, a young candidate for Congress named Jack Kennedy was at his doorstep. And when I answered the door, I saw this tall, thin, handsome fellow. He put out his hand and said, I'm Jack Kennedy, and I am a candidate for Congress. Will you help me? Here's Fred Logoval. Kennedy's just back from the service, doesn't really know what he's doing. He's a pretty lousy politician in this first race. But he hears that Powers is somebody he should get to know. Powers, at that point, is committed to somebody else but decides, I'm going to take a chance on this guy. Dave Powers and Jack Kennedy were unlikely collaborators. Kennedy was the Harvard-educated son of a millionaire. Powers was raised by a single mother and never even graduated from college. But the two men quickly developed a strong bond. He's a guy with a great sense of humor. He is legendary for his baseball statistics. Kennedy would say to him, Dave, How often did Ted Williams hit a home run? And Powers would think about it for a second, and then he'd say, one out of every 15 at-bats. And then somebody would check, and Powers was correct. JFK valued Powers not only for his kind of street smarts when it came to politics, but he also valued him for his loyalty, for his sunny demeanor. And Powers would be there right to the end uh, in in the White House. After that meeting in January 1946, Powers would later recall, I stayed with him from that day until November 22nd, 1963, when I was riding in the car behind him in Dallas. Kenny O'Donnell came to know Jack Kennedy in a different way, through his brother Bobby. He and Bobby Kennedy were at Harvard together some years after JFK had been at Harvard. He was a football player at Harvard and had flown missions over Europe in World War II, had crash-landed behind enemy lines at one point. If Day Powers was Jack Kennedy's happy warrior, O'Donnell was his dark, serious foil. He was trained as a lawyer and served with Bobby Kennedy on the Senate Labor Rackets Committee. He was a shrewd operator who could make an unemotional argument about both sides of a political question, offering information without his own bias. And Bobby convinces Kenny, he convinces O'Donnell in 52, hey, come on board my brother's Senate campaign. We could really use you. Um, He decides to do it. From that time on, both men were key figures in the Kennedy operation, following him all the way to the White House. While they both held the title of special assistant to the president, their jobs were hard to define. For the purposes of the tape, would you introduce yourself? Uh, this is uh, David F. Powers, presidential assistant. And what was, what could you describe in a couple of sentences your general function? Uh, my job was to keep the president on time. Even O'Donnell himself wasn't sure what his job was. When he learned that the president had appointed him, he asked his friend Bobby Kennedy what it meant. Bobby laughed and replied, It means whatever the hell he wants it to mean. As it turned out, what it meant was that both men would be at Jack Kennedy's side for every moment of his administration. They would advise on policy, they would wrangle lawmakers, and they would control access to the Oval Office. 
Bobby Kennedy would later say of O'Donnell, There was not a decision, large or small, made by my brother in which Kenny was not a key factor. Day Powers was so close to the president that he was sometimes referred to as the first friend. I think it's true that they performed a variety of roles really from the very beginning and became, along with JFK, so closely knit that they would have a certain kind of language almost that was all to their own. They would complete one another's sentences. They would speak in a kind of shorthand. When Jackie Kennedy comes into the picture, first as uh, the girlfriend and then the fiance and then the wife of Jack Kennedy, she marveled at this. To define their roles or to say that Kenny O'Donnell just did this or Powers they just did this, I think that would be insufficient. Powers, for example, it was his task to wake up Kennedy in the morning during the campaign travels, and he would say things like, so, Jack, what do you think Nixon is doing while you're lying around here in bed? In other words, he had that capacity to get Kennedy going. All of them performed a variety of functions that were crucial to Kennedy's rise, no question. Working for Jack Kennedy was complicated. In many ways, it was empowering, thrilling, and important work. They were shaping history together and they were bringing a perspective to government, Irish and Catholic, that had previously been excluded. Well, when you're with them, you never thought of anything that wasn't happy, as I say, except the long ride home from Texas, because everything about them was great. And, and uh, uh, I've been happy since I first met him in 1946. Uh, he was so great to work for. While Jack was the center of the circle, the leader of the organization, they were more than colleagues. They were family. It was this tight-knit bond and this shared Irish Catholic history that collectively earned them the nickname the Irish Mafia. You're talking in some ways about kind of perfect aides. And what I mean by that is they're tight-lipped. They're tough. I think they're shrewd politically. They don't take themselves too seriously. Their commitment is entirely to John F. Kennedy. But they're also willing to say exactly what they think. But membership in Jack Kennedy's inner circle required unflinching loyalty. It required Day Powers, Kenny O'Donnell, and others to sometimes take steps to protect their boss that could be unseemly and push the boundaries of the law. It required them to keep secrets. Secrets like Mimi Beardsley. The last time Mimi Beardsley saw Jack Kennedy, he gave her $300 as a wedding present. It was an unusual gift to receive from the man she had been having an affair with. Mimi was a sophomore at Wheaton College and a summer intern at the White House press office. She was tall, slender, and well-mannered, a graduate of the same boarding school that Jackie Kennedy had attended years earlier. On her fourth day in the White House, she was assembling a pile of press clippings when the phone on her desk rang. On the other end of the line was Dave Powers. Want to have a swim, he asked. Where do you swim, she replied, confused. In the days of the Kennedy administration, the swimming pool was located just a short distance from the press office. It was decorated like a tropical oasis with murals of St. Croix painted along the exterior walls. The murals had been a gift from JFK's father. The water temperature was kept at 90 degrees to help soothe the president's back pain. Powers escorted Mimi to the pool, 
She was swimming with some other staffers when the president arrived to join them. Later in the afternoon, she received another invitation from Powers to a party in the White House residence. It was there that she was introduced to Kenny O'Donnell. Decades later, after her secret had been exposed, Mimi would recall what happened next. I was invited to join a group of staffers and um, on the second floor in the residence of the White House. And President Kennedy took me on a tour of the rooms of the White House, and it ended up in a bedroom. And that's where um, our first encounter happened and where I lost my virginity. Certainly was an incredibly imbalanced relationship and not a good relationship um, in hindsight, looking back for a 19-year-old to have, for any 19-year-old to be in a relationship with someone who is 45 years old and married and to be at their beck and call. But at the time, I was in this uh, amazing situation in the White House and with these people, and I was just, in a way, swept away with it. In the days and weeks that followed, there were more invitations for swims in the White House pool, more small gatherings in the private residence, more late nights alone with the president. Dave Powers was often a facilitator of these encounters. And according to Beardsley, at least on one occasion, he was a participant. In her memoir, she recalled that during one of their many swims, the president asked Mimi to perform a sex act on Powers. She complied. Mimi would eventually meet a young man from her college circle and get engaged. But her affair with the president would continue all the way to August of 1963, when Jack and Jackie lost their baby boy, Patrick. Mimi was hoping to join the trip to Dallas and resume their relationship, but she was bumped from the guest list when Jackie decided to attend. After Kennedy was killed, Mimi was distraught and confessed the affair to her fiancé. But otherwise, her secret remained hidden, protected by the Irish Mafia. 4.58 p.m., November 22, 1963. The ground rushes up to greet Air Force One as it touches down at Andrews Air Force Base outside of D.C. Despite their hours of drinking, Dave Powers and Kenny O'Donnell are stone sober. Jackie has switched to coffee. As the plane taxis on the runway, word reaches the cabin that an attachment of military pallbearers is en route to carry Kennedy's casket from the plane. O'Donnell is having none of it. We'll carry him off ourselves, he declares. Both men are mulling over Lyndon Johnson's request. Could they really go work for him? They had been polite, but noncommittal. Neither man was prepared to do much thinking about the future. Their only concern at this moment was for Jackie and the Kennedy family. But for O'Donnell in particular, the thought of working for Lyndon Johnson was a particularly cruel and ironic notion to swallow. If Kennedy had listened to him back in 1960, a Johnson presidency would have never even occurred. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Much of the animosity the Kennedy camp felt towards Lyndon Johnson can be traced back to the 1960 Democratic National Convention, when the party gathered to select their presidential candidate. JFK had competed aggressively in the primaries, charming audiences on the campaign trail, and emerging as a frontrunner for the nomination. Lyndon Johnson, by contrast, had opted not to compete in the primaries at all. Instead, he planned to win the nomination the old-fashioned way, by lobbying delegates directly during the convention. Johnson was confident in his chances. He was the Senate Majority Leader with a long list of legislative accomplishments. Who was more qualified than him to serve as president? But Johnson underestimated JFK's appeal. And by the time the convention rolled around, he found himself fighting an uphill battle. So Johnson set out to discredit his opponent by spreading rumors that Jack Kennedy is in ill health that his father, Joe Kennedy, is an appeaser and friend of Hitler. Anything he can think of to swing the race his way. Nonetheless, on the night of July 13, 1960, Jack Kennedy wins the Democratic nomination for president, beating Lyndon Johnson by a wide margin. The great senator from the state of Massachusetts, John F. Kennedy! The only thing Johnson accomplishes with his sabotage is to make enemies for life within the Kennedy camp. It will color his interactions with Kennedy's advisors for years to come. With the nominee decided, only one question remains. Who will Kennedy select as his running mate? He's scheduled to announce his official choice the following day, July 14th. Because Kennedy is Catholic and from Boston, Many people assume he'll choose someone who can help him win votes in the South. For Kenny O'Donnell, he expects that means Stuart Symington, a popular senator from Missouri. One of O'Donnell's jobs in the Kennedy campaign is managing the relationship with organized labor. Symington has the union's support. Not to mention union leaders absolutely hate Lyndon Johnson. So O'Donnell is furious when he hears rumors that Kennedy has chosen Johnson, of all people, to join him on the ticket. 
O'Donnell marches through the Biltmore Hotel up to Jack Kennedy's suite and bangs on the door. He pulls Kennedy into the bathroom, shuts the door, and begins to rant. I think this is the biggest mistake of your career, O'Donnell tells him. You won the nomination as president last night as a knight on a white charger. Now, in your first move after your nomination, you're going against the people who backed you? Kennedy is shocked by the outburst and angry that his aide would question his judgment. Get one thing clear, Kenny, he tells him. I'm 43 years old and I'm the healthiest candidate for president in the country. I'm not going to die in office. Five p.m., November 22, 1963, Andrews Air Force Base. Together with the help from Secret Service agents and others, Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers carry JFK's casket from the rear of the plane into a waiting hearse. Jackie asks Bill Greer, who had been driving the limo when the president was shot, to drive the hearse to Bethesda Naval Hospital for the autopsy. Greer had been beside himself with guilt believing he could have saved the president's life if he had taken evasive action when the first shot rang out. Powers and O'Donnell travel to the hospital with Jackie, but once she's safely inside, they depart for the funeral home. The president's casket had been damaged in transit, and they've been tasked with finding a new one. In the early hours of the morning, they choose a stately mahogany casket as Kennedy's final vessel. Dave Powers remarks, You know, back in the neighborhood in Charlestown, where I grew up, they measure your importance by the prestige of the people who came to your funeral. I always thought my funeral would be great because President Kennedy would come to it. And now, here I am. They finally returned to the White House after 4 a.m. Jackie had invited them and a few other key aides to sleep in the White House residence. They collapse, exhausted, at around 7 a.m. They're asleep for less than an hour when the phone rings. Pierre Salinger, JFK's press secretary, answers. He's still half asleep. The secretary on the other end of the line informs him that the president wants to speak with him. Pierre smiles. The assassination had all been just a bad dream. But when the call connects, the voice that greets him belongs to Lyndon Johnson. While Powers and O'Donnell were casket shopping the night before, Lyndon Johnson had gone straight to work. After delivering his brief speech in front of Air Force One, he took a helicopter to the White House. It sets down on the South Lawn at 6.17 p.m., a little less than five hours after President Kennedy was shot. But although reporters have gathered to film his arrival, when Johnson departs from the aircraft, their attention is elsewhere. They're watching the balcony of the White House residence to see if the Kennedy children had gathered to welcome their father home. While some advisors expected Johnson to go right to the Oval Office, he instead travels to the vice president's office in the executive office building. There, at 7.05 p.m., he begins calling potential allies for support. He begins by calling the three living former presidents, Harry Truman, Herbert Hoover, and Dwight Eisenhower. At 7.45, he meets with a delegation of congressmen. The Soviets will be watching closely for signs of weakness, he reminds them. It's vital that the United States project continuity, stability, and order 
during the transition to the new administration. Johnson continues to work the phones well into the night, calling close Kennedy advisors like speechwriter Ted Sorensen and Dick McGuire, a charter member of the Irish Mafia. In each case, he repeats a version of the same request he had made to Powers and O'Donnell earlier in the day. He needs them now even more than Kennedy needed them. Why is it so important to Johnson to line up the support of Powers, O'Donnell, and other close Kennedy advisors? Part of it was pure optics. Keeping familiar names in his administration would reassure the public and legitimize his presidency. As he told the historian Doris Kearns Goodwin, I needed that White House staff. Without them, I would have lost my link to John Kennedy. And without that, I would have had absolutely no chance of gaining the support of the media or the Easterners or the intellectuals. And without that support, I would have had absolutely no chance of governing the country. Johnson also needed institutional knowledge. Sure, he was a master of the Senate, but the White House was something else altogether. As he told Kenny O'Donnell aboard Air Force One, you know that I don't know one soul north of the Mason-Dixon line. You know that I don't know any of those big city fellows. I need you. Finally, Johnson believed that inviting the two men to join him was in some sense an act of compassion. The White House is small, he would later recall, but if you're not at the center, it seems enormous. You get the feeling that there are all sorts of meetings going on without you, all sorts of people clustered in small groups, whispering, always whispering. I felt that way as vice president, and after Kennedy's death, I knew his men would feel the same thing. So I determined to keep them informed. I determined to keep them busy. For Kenny O'Donnell, the decision to join the Johnson administration was a tortured one. On one hand, he couldn't stomach the idea of serving any leader other than Jack Kennedy. O'Donnell wasn't particularly confident that Lyndon Johnson could deliver on Kennedy's bold vision. But he was certain that if a Republican was elected in 1964, everything he had worked for would die with Kennedy in Dallas. And so, after a period of indecisiveness, both Powers and O'Donnell decide to join the Johnson administration, at least for the time being. Winning their support is a key early victory for Lyndon Johnson easing his transition to the presidency, and helping him to consolidate power ahead of the 1964 elections. But he was under no illusions about the depth of that support. They would never be as loyal to him as they had been to Jack Kennedy. And so even as Powers and O'Donnell are transitioning into their new roles, Johnson was already assembling his own team of loyalists to eventually replace them. Viewed from that perspective, the roles Powers and O'Donnell will play in the Johnson administration might seem insignificant. Neither man would serve for long. But consider the alternative. Had the liberal wing of the party revolted? Had they rejected Lyndon Johnson out of personal animosity, pride, or grief? The 1960s could have turned out very differently. Had the Republican candidate, Barry Goldwater, won the election in 1964, it would have meant, at a minimum, a years-long delay in passage of the Civil Rights Act. It would have meant the end of the Voting Rights Act. The accomplishments of the so-called Great Society would be nothing more than an unrealized dream. 
But Powers and O'Donnell chose to stay, helping Johnson to pass the Civil Rights Act and to win the 1964 presidential election. With those victories secured in 1965, both Powers and O'Donnell left the White House. Dave Powers would become the curator of the JFK Presidential Library, and Kenny O'Donnell would go to work for Bobby Kennedy. His role? Advising RFK in his 1968 campaign for president, a campaign in which Bobby Kennedy would be running against none other than Lyndon Johnson. While Powers and O'Donnell are wrestling with the future of their careers, Jackie Kennedy is absorbed in the future of her family. In the aftermath of the assassination, she has a funeral to plan, a husband to mourn, children to comfort, and a household to pack. But after that, she didn't know. That's next time on 24 Hours After. Thanks for listening to 24 Hours After, a History Channel original produced by Awfully Nice and hosted by me, Steve Gillen. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks to our guests, David Farber, Frederick Logoval, Jeff Seschel, and Randall Woods. 24 Hours After is written and produced by Jesse Burton and Jane Ackerman. Editing and sound design by Bang Audio Post. Our project manager is Kadi Kamakate. Our supervising producers are McKamey Lynn and Ben Dixing. Our executive producers are Jesse Burton, Katie Hodges, Jesse Katz, and me, Steve Gillen. Special thanks to The Cutting Room and Haga Studios. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review 24 Hours After wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.